0: a mature senior leadership team will be reflective around what resources they have available um, and whether this is going to be something that can be done at a stretch by the organization reasonably well, or is this gonna be a major operational drag? Um, everything from, from setting up entities within, within markets to different employee mo- employer models um, and cultures to cultural considerations. you know, Are you going to be able to scale the special culture that you build into, into other offices? Um, can you hire really good talent there or is that going to be quite difficult? Can you build an employer brand within these markets as well? Uh, and then ultimately, when you move in market, uh, what does good look like? How do, you, how do you measure success here? What does that look like over the next little while? These are considerations that I think should be taken into account with your, with your senior leadership team and really everybody should be bought into
1: the project. Welcome to the International Expansion Podcast. My name is Ramsey Pryor, and I spent the past five years taking one of Silicon Valley's fastest growing startups into new markets all around the world as head of international expansion and sales. Tech companies are able to expand overseas faster than ever before, but there's quite a lot that goes into getting it right. And each new market has its own unique and fascinating set of quirks and challenges. The best way to prepare is to learn from people who have been there before, So I started this podcast to gather the best practices from tech's most admired startups. We cover their successes and the things they got right, as well as their mistakes and learnings, all so that you can benefit from their hindsight as you take your company global. Thanks for listening. And if you or your company is looking for guidance on your expansion journey, or if you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Welcome to this episode of the International Expansion Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Robbie O'Connor, General Manager EMEA at Notion. Many of the folks listening know Notion as an all-in-one workspace for your notes, databases, Kanban boards, wikis, calendars, and reminders. If you haven't heard of Notion yet, odds are someone at your company is already using it, and they're going to be inviting you to start using it with them very soon. Notion has been around since 2013 and is growing like wildfire within startups as well as Fortune 500 companies and they now have a base of over four million users and a valuation of $2 billion. Robbie has led the commercial charge for a Silicon Valley companies entering Europe for a long time now, and he was part of the early teams at Google and Dropbox and Asana prior to joining Notion. He's on the board of directors of Asana Ireland and is an advisory board member at Sendoso. Robbie and I met a few years ago at a dinner hosted by the Irish Development Agency held for international expansion heads here in San Francisco, and we've kept in touch ever since. So it's an honor now to share the kind of conversations Robbie and I used to have one-on-one with all of you. Robbie, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, Ramsey, great to speak with you. Thanks for the glorious introduction. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, well, it's uh, I've been really looking forward to picking your brain because I get a lot of questions from companies who want to know how the best people out there approach going into Europe. And there's few people out there that have more experience in this than you. So i got a lot of questions today uh, to talk about best practices, mistakes, and just things you've learned along the way. Um, But maybe to start and give some people some context, I gave a little bit of an introduction about Notion, but would love for you to, to describe it much better than I can. What does Notion do? And as the general manager of EMEA at Notion, what's your charge?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you kind of touched on uh, during your introduction, Notion really is an all-in-one tool for notes, for projects, for docs, and ultimately collaboration. Um, The tool can be used by individuals to keep their lives and their notes organized, and by teams and even whole companies to coordinate the works of tens, hundreds, and even thousands of people. Um, we've millions of users worldwide, and we're used by thousands of teams to build wikis, pro- manage projects, share documents, and also we keep communication flowing all in one spot. What we're kind of noticing is that people are getting tired of jumping through dozens of apps, of tabs, and notifications every day just to get one thing done. And um, it really limits focus and productivity. It damages transparency um, because all the information gets siloed within separate tools. And really, it's squanders time spent searching for the right resources and meeting in person just to stay aligned. Um, We're really excited today to have a massive energized audience all around the world. We're a really global product, but we're also focused on building the best product for enterprise customers with teams of of hundreds to thousands through the organization. Ultimately, Notion's long-term vision is to give everyone the ability to shape the tools that shape their lives. Um, You shouldn't have to know how to code to build the best tool to solve your environment, and that's what we're trying to solve for. When everybody has the best tools to solve their problems, we'll be able to tackle the world's biggest problem. So so that's a little bit about Notion, just in a a nutshell. Um, And the second part of your question around my role. So um, Notion is growing really, really well internationally. It just seems to be one of those tools that's taken to international markets very well. Um, And my role as the general manager for the company in the region is, uh, I think I'm on the hook for, for the holistic growth for for uh for our, our business within the region, so um, I kind of have direct lines and dotted lines over various levels of responsibility, from keeping track on our overall user growth to prioritizing what markets we should be we should be t- spending efforts on, and um, to kind of coordinating cross functionally um, what our efforts doing tied together as part of a regional strategy. And then I'm directly responsible for our, our direct sales revenue growth within the region as well. So we have a sales team set up in Dublin, in Ireland in our European headquarters. Um, and I currently oversee that uh, in line with our customer success team um, and, and other teams that we're spinning up within the region team.
1: Cool, you touched on about 10 or 12 topics that I wanted to go into in more depth uh, from where you're located to the fact that you're starting off as a a general manager at a company that is on a growth path. So I love to talk about like how to organize your uh, regional teams. Um, but maybe just in for a little more benchmarking, um, can you give us uh, within the information you are able to share, just a picture of, uh, you mentioned that you have millions of users and you're kind of all over the world, but in terms of the team and um, customers and geographical reach, where are you guys today?
0: Yeah. So in terms of in terms of users, I think the approved figure that we give is we've we over 10 million users currently um, worldwide. Um, and as I touched on, uh, it's hard to it's hard to put a finger on exactly how many countries but Notion is incredibly popular. Um, from markets like Korea and Japan, where we're growing super well uh, through APAC2, um, to many markets within Europe where Notion has proliferated super strong, particularly within, within startups, scale-ups, and innovative forward-leaning organizations, through to our domestic market, which is in, which is in North America, uh, and even in LATAM as well, where we see a lot of customers coming from Brazil, from, from, from Argentina. Uh, and those growing economies there. Notion's truly a, a global company. Um, today, I think last year we, we had something like thirty employees. Beginning last year, um, and today we're going to be about one hundred and fifty within the organization right now. So there's been steady and considerate growth um, from a company perspective uh, as we as we kind of chase the demand for our product.
1: That is incredible growth and so much of the world to cover, and especially when the product is taking off like this is with 130, with 250, it's a lot of geography to cover with um, a finite team. So Robbie, I always love asking people this question, and I'm, I'm really keen to know your opinion, but you have a company that has clear product market fit and probably needs to be everywhere yesterday. How do you think about where to put people and which continents countries, locations to prioritize first?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's the question <laughs> at the center of any international operator. Um, so if you're in a very fortunate position where you have product market fit in, in multiple geographies and jurisdictions, um, I think every company comes to the point where they have to kind of sit around a table and just look at the data, see where your users are, See where you're getting traction, where you're generating revenue. And um, most companies will start with with you know just the operational setup for their own domestic market. They um, have their product localized only in their own language, um, they only accept billing um, or revenue in in their own currency. Um, and they're really only set up to operate within that market. So, in order to, to to figure out how you unlock even more value for users around the world, it's important to to prioritize um, where you need to go. And then what it's gonna to take to go there, and then and then how you need to get there as well. So everything from what languages you think you need to localize your product into, um, how much value will that unlock? You know, is that gonna be a big revenue grower? Will that allow you to increase? Increase your your total addressable market. Um, from an operational perspective, what type of or how do you go to market? Do you need to put people within the region that have language skills? What type of teams should go in the region? Where you need to go in the region? Um, legally, is it safe to go there? Uh, do you have? A, is this going to be a real operational headache? You know, from a people perspective, you're going to be able to employ people safely. There's a lot of considerations that go into to taking the call. On um, on 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 what you want to do with your international operations, um, I think for the companies that I've been with, um, it's just it's just been a fun ride. And um, the products have been going themselves into these markets, and, and the companies are, are effectively playing catch up um, to to put humans where there's demand. So again, as I mentioned, we look at how many users, how much revenue we're already generating there. We 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 scope um, what initiatives will help us go faster. Um, go better, localize even more before we decide what type of go-to-market operations we would put within the region. Um, how do we start? How do we start really, really well? And then ultimately, what does what does good look like over the next two, three, four, five years? Um, and how do you how do you plan accordingly to start well and, and grow efficiently?
1: I'm writing down so many follow-up questions, but thanks um, <laughs> thanks for that overview. Maybe what one of the big questions that I think my next that that lead to my next one is the question of when because you mentioned a lot of the things that every company needs to do and the question is really when do you start doing those things especially when even in your home market there's so many needs and so many things that you could hire for um but then you've got to start making the case to the founders or to the business that hey we've got a big market over here we need people in this mar- this region that region so maybe at what point do you think, what do you think the prereqs are before you start expanding out of your home market? And what do you think the milestones or the things that you need to be prepared for are, especially when you're coming into Europe?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good question as well. Um, expanding internationally is hard. It's no trivial effort. Um, and it takes a high degree of consideration. Um, it's not something that's done for the fun, it's done something. It's done for, for, for significant business purposes. Ultimately, I think the responsibility for your international growth plans should sit at the highest desk possible within the business. You know, I'm talking about the, the COO or, or hopefully even the CEO. This should be a project that they're invested in. Um, and that the reasons for you investing in international operations is in line with the overall company objectives. Um, be they revenue focused, be they growth focused, be they market penetration focused. You know, the reason that you're going international is, is because you, you want to achieve the company objective that you're aiming for. That means that everything else becomes a little bit easier to unblock and unlock um, kind of through the organization when this has, has senior C-level attention and focus. Um, because there's lots of different alignment pieces, action pieces, which are just difficult enough that it needs the right degree of kind of focus there. From there, uh, you know, again, if you're in the position where, one, your company has the ambition, um, and two, the need to to go international, um, I think a mature senior leadership team will be reflective around what resources they have available, um, and whether this is going to be something that can be done at a stretch by the organization reasonably well. Or is this going to be a major operational drag? And um, everything from from setting up entities within within markets to different employee mo- employer models um, and cultures to cultural considerations. You know, are you going to be able to scale the special culture that you build into into other offices? And um, can you hire really good talent there, or is that going to be quite difficult? Can you build an employer brand within these markets as well? Uh, and then ultimately, when you move in market, uh. What does good look like? How do you how do you measure success here? What does that look like over the next little while? These are considerations that I think should be taken into account with your with your senior leadership team, and really everybody should be bought into the project. Um, from from that sense. Um, in terms of what to watch out for when you're when you're getting rolling within the region as well. So I think where you get set up is is really really important to consider. Um, depending on the company, depending on the product, depending on. On what type of market you're chasing, what type of customer you're going after, there's a n- there's a number of different models that you can that you can pursue, um, and it's even more complicated now with 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 pandemic world. Um, many companies go for for an inside hub um, with with customer facing teams who can handle everything with an inside fashion. Your your support teams, your sales teams, your success teams, who can administer and manage the entire region from one centralized hub. Um, some companies need to open multiple entities in different in different markets because they want face-to-face interaction or close proximity to their key markets as well. So I think um, I think the structure of the team that you put in place uh, and where you want to get set up initially is, is an important consideration as well. Um for me, it feels like you know, the first year when you get into market is not about killing it or crushing it or smashing it, it's about setting it up. It's about hiring really, really good people. Um many companies will choose to to plant a, a landing team. Um, that is born that that comes from you know well tenured existing team members, which is a great adventure. So much fun to be to be to be moving to a different market with your company. Um, and then I think just uh, just getting your early stage team set up and making sure that we're setting the culture right, that you are creating the quite l- the, the right links between headquarters and and the region, uh, and you're setting the right priorities in place for for the following years, which is where you should hopefully be be aiming for growth. Um, and further, further operational success, is the way I think about it.
1: This episode is brought to you by Globalization Partners. Many people assume that in order to enter a new country, you have to set up a new entity for your company, which can mean engaging in months of filings, years of investment obligations, legal fees, and a boatload of aspirin for all those headaches. That's a really heavy burden, especially if you're only hiring a few employees or if you're still testing a particular market. Globalization Partners invented a better way of hiring talent in other countries in 2012 that allows you to focus on hiring the talent you need and growing your company while they take care of the employment details. They provide locally compliant employee contracts, manage payroll, pensions, benefits, and a lot more as part of the package. And they cover 187 countries and 180 currencies. They offer all of this through their proprietary technology platform and provide experts you can call on when tricky situations come up anywhere in the world. And take it from me, these situations do come up frequently, and when they do, you want the most experienced people and the best technology behind you. For more information, visit globalizationpartners.com and choose the country you'd like to learn more about. Robbie, you're based in Ireland, and a lot of the companies that you've worked for have set up a big hub in Ireland. And I- I I know some of the reasons and some of the advantages, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. What are the reasons that Ireland's so attractive to foreign companies coming into Europe? And what are some of the pros and cons of being set up there as your European hub?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if you put yourself in the shoes of a founder or a senior executive within a fast-growing tech company, say from, from somewhere in North America or elsewhere... Um, in America, you've one nice big homogenous market. All speak the same language. Few cultural differences here and there, but um, but it's you know it's, it's simplistic in a way. Um, look at Europe. It's it's a bit scary. There's a a lot of different countries. They're all operating at a different pace. They have different economies. They have different attitudes to to foreign to foreign products. Um, they have different languages. They have different different cultures. Um, Europe in many ways is, is a really blended space. Um, not to mention the Middle East and Africa as well, which usually gets grouped in with uh, with European markets too. So I think I think these 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 early stage companies or these scaling up companies, they just look for simplicity. And I think Ireland has managed to provide um, a very very appealing playbook um, to many of these organizations, which kind of shows how you could administer um, this large region successfully, all the way from the very first day that you set up your operations within the region. All the way through to if you're lucky enough to be in you know the Google's, Microsoft's, Facebook's, where you're where you get thousands of, of people within operations through the region, um, more so than anything, uh, many people choose Ireland because there's a tremendous uh, track record of success from from organizations dating back to the '70s and '60s, starting with U.S. pharmaceutical companies through to the to to, to the earlier tech companies, the Intels, the Dells, the the. Um, through to the Microsofts, the Amazons, and the PayPal generation, um, through to to the Googles and Facebooks, uh, and the next generation, the LinkedIns, the Slacks, uh, the Dropboxes, uh, through to... You know, newer companies again like the Asanas and Rikes and, and even you know recently Notion, who just moved over there as well. There's there's like 30 years of success there um, and lots of playbooks that can that can be copied. Um what's happened in, in, in Dublin is that with so much um, focus from, from fast growing and, and well-known tech companies. Um, many people from Europe have moved to Dublin um, because they want to work in tech. And they work for these great companies where they receive great training. They they learn about operational excellence. They grow and develop their careers. So that means there's a very effective ecosystem, a tech ecosystem within the city. It's very cosmopolitan, very international city. And um, that means there's a very rich talent pool that you can hire from. So uh, of many of the of the venues within within Europe, um, you know, depending on what you're looking for, if you need a a Swedish-speaking mid-level sales manager, there's a good chance you'll find it in Dublin. At the same time, if you're looking for an entry-level French-speaking support person, you'll probably find them in Dublin as well. Um, while you know, you're know you looking for a senior director who, who happens to speak German and maybe Italian at the same time, it's a good chance that you'll be able to hire them within within Dublin too from one of the, from one of the companies. So the primary benefits is the Irish government has, has just made doing business in Ireland Really, really easy. They're unintrusive and they they don't try and push you around. Um, that's not the same for, for many any other markets. Um, Ireland's a very outward looking company, a country as well. You know, we call it Ireland Inc. And um, we really invite in foreign direct investment. It's a very important part of our economy. Um, and then there's just a strong track record of success and a really strong hiring pool that people can hire from. And again, you can almost just set up your your command and control center for the rest of the region from Dublin um, to begin with. And you know, should you have a requirement to To have closer proximity to a market, many companies take the option to spin up field operations in some of the bigger economies like the UK, like France, like Germany, and elsewhere, depending on on how much traction you're getting in that
1: market too. Thanks for that. And Robbie, do you see any other centers in Europe popping up as great places to find that kind of multicultural tech talent?
0: For sure, absolutely. Um,
1: it's funny, you know. Europe seems to sort of have woken up to tech in the last
0: uh, in the last five ten years. I think twenty years ago, all of the all of the ecosystem and, and the funding for tech was almost exclusively in Silicon Valley or pockets within 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 APAC. Um, Europe was much more dependent on more traditional industries like manufacturing or retail or CPG or or automotive. All the big European brands are. Are those are from those industries right there's very few big european tech companies however in the last five to ten years european governments have have understood that this industry is at the heartbeat of innovation and that drives economies to be more innovative and more forward-leaning so invested heavily in creating the right ecosystems here um you know everything from from banking money um being channeled into funding initiatives uh, vcs and the first successful tech companies in Europe. The alumni groups forming mini VC firms as well, where they're seed investing and angel investing into into the next great idea, um, and then seeing those companies move through through the regular funding rounds and and, and going public. Um, that's kind of created a great tech ecosystem within Europe, which makes which makes uh, a great landing pad for many companies who are looking to move there. Great centers like Amsterdam, like like London, um, like Paris. Paris is really one of the the, the startup. Heartbeat of, of Europe right now with somewhere like Station F, um, even cities like Lisbon have 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 put themselves on the map to be these great cities where you can attract talent to work there um, at really competitive rates, uh, and you can build really really good, really really good operations there too. So the the choice is actually increasing and improving for for many organizations who are looking
1: to to get set up within within Amia. It's great to hear, Robbie. You are a sales leader and. You know, you've done this at a lot of different places, uh, I had a similar challenge of trying to figure out how to go into Europe and really break the continent down into addressable groups or clusters. And I'd love to know, you know, what are the different approaches that you've seen work, whether it's kind of like a North-South Europe or breaking it into um, kind of like the biggest countries or Eastern Europe versus Western Europe? What, what have you seen as a way to... Kind of divide up the con- continent and, and the territory.
0: Yeah, it's 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 so much fun. This is actually a topic that's very close to my heart because um, I've done this a bunch of times. Sometimes I've got it really really right. Sometimes I totally screwed it up and got it, and got it really wrong. But I think any exec within within you know the industry that we're in. We'll we'll kind of talk with with fondness around the segmentation of of EMEA. Um Again, every company is very different. Um, it depends on your product. It depends on your audience. It depends on the markets that you're chasing. It depends on how you're doing in those markets as well. Um, I think I've been fortunate to to be in the position where you start simplistically as possible. I mean, you're going to start with like two or three salespeople and they're going to have all the leads from the whole region. They're going to be getting French leads and German leads and Swedish leads and whatever, some Turkish leads and some Italian leads thrown in there. Um, and over time, you'll begin to, to to analyze, you know, how many leads are you are getting from different markets? How many users do you have in different markets? How much revenue are you generating from here? And you can begin to kind of plot out, you know, I can have a few headcount here. I can have a couple of headcounts there. Um, depending on your selling motion, you might be, you, know, you might be very heavily new business selling motion and then an expansion business selling motion you could be very clearly mid-market smb and, and enterprise oriented you then begin to kind of subdivide again uh, around okay so say for france started with just like half a person now it's a full person then i could probably squeeze 10 people in here that can fulfill quota over time across an smb space mid-market and enterprise um so I think it starts simplistically with like one big region, then you may divide it um, depending on 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 how many markets or how much how much uh, like of a book of business do you need to support x number of reps. Um but over time, things going well, it, it subdivides and subdivides and subdivides again. Um, and you'll end up maybe with 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 four regions. The classic will be you know the English speaking regions, the UK, Ireland, sometimes South Africa will be thrown in there. Um, the Dach region, um, which is which is Deutschland, Austria, Switzerland, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, which is all the German-speaking markets. France usually stands alone, you um, know, being, a, being a, a monolinguistic market. You know, the Nordics, that you can typically group together that, that that beautiful little region of five markets. The Benelux, another little power market of the the, the Netherlands and Belgium, and then Southern Europe certainly, in my experience, is always uh, is always an interesting space. You've you large economies that are that are just a, a little bit less tech-affiliated at the moment, like Spain, Portugal, Italy um uh you fund markets like the middle east you know uh, there's there's loads of stuff going on within within dubai and saudi uh, at any given time and israel is a real hot spot for for tech at the moment Uh, and then um here and there you get really good traction in africa as well south africa has some very interesting things going on their economy and then some parts of uh, of west africa as well can, can be strong so again depending on where you see your traction how many Seats you need to fill, how much quota you have, how much head can you have, you can you can cut Europe endlessly, <laughs> endlessly <laughs> into different segmentation pieces, and having a really good ops person, a really good strategy person um, is is really to the front of uh, of making that happen, and uh, partnering with you to uh, to cut the
1: region, recut, it, and make your plans. Totally agree. Um, I had a partner in crime that helped. Uh, we sliced and dice many different times in many ways. And I agree. It, it depends on where you are in the evolution. But yeah, in the early days, there's a couple of lucky reps that get uh, the entire continent to themselves. Um, let's talk a little bit about selling specifically. You mentioned there's a lot of different pockets, cultures, languages to deal with. Do you find... What do you find different about selling into Europe versus other markets and what needs to be adapted in terms of the sales approach for the continent and maybe even within the continent? You know, this is a super interesting
0: question because this feels like a subject that's always moving for me. Always, always moving. Um, I think you go back like 15 years, 10 years ago, Europe needed a high, high, high degree of, of localization. Um Business language in these markets was pretty much restricted to to whatever the domestic language was. Meaning, if you're working in Germany, you're working in German. If you're working in France, you're work, you're speaking French. Um, same for for any of the other markets. It just Feels like the dial has moved over the last number of years. Where certainly in Germany, English is like is one of the business languages in 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 most parts of the economy. And what that means is that you're requirement to localize is a little bit more diminished. Um, and whereas you would absolutely have needed to place a high degree of emphasis on localizing in language um, before. you still need to do it today, but you can you can you can make inroads into a market with your with your North American offering. Um, because we're working in tech, uh, many of the of the startup ecosystems around the world, becoming very homogenous if you walk around the station f campus in paris it feels like you're walking around silicon valley and you're hearing accents from all over the world um you could be walking around the googleplex there um it almost just feels like the uh, the startup ecosystems have been aping and mimicking kind of what they see in silicon valley so that means that the way that they work and the tools that they operate in are the same are kind of are are similar that almost feels like a good starting pad so certainly for the companies i've been with um, just getting rolling, getting up and running within the startup startup ecosystems and with the, the European native tech scene has almost been like selling to, to tech companies in the States. Um, it's almost from there, though, that over the next couple of years, you do need to begin to plan your your localization strategy. It's very important to get under the skin of each different market. Understand where your users are today. How can you consolidate that base and make it stronger? And where are the users that you want to sell to uh, in future? Um, take a market like Germany. Um, you know, if you have a a marketing solution, you look at which cities are are strong for for advertising for marketing um, organizations, and it's not necessarily always what you would think you know hamburg is one of the biggest um hubs globally for for marketing industries and you may need to localize your your approach to to really going after that city to start with um and france is a little bit different it's almost a um there's one massive city and there's a number of other cities, but you really have to focus your efforts around around that place. Similar for the UK, where it's where it's London as well. Um, and over time, you'll begin to figure out, you know, what's the nuances within this market, which we need to begin to cater to? How much resources do we have to be able to facilitate that localization? Um, similar to the way you think of sales, you know, you'll probably start with one marketer in the region. And, God bless them. They have to manage a whole bunch of crazy regions that all have slightly different considerations. Um, but over time, you'll you'll have a marketing manager for the UK, one for France, one for Germany, one for the Nordics, and they really begin to, to to double down on what are the what are the nuances, what what are the trends that are happening within that market, different to the others that you can that you can attach your your branding towards as well. Um, So again, to begin with, similar to to what I mentioned with how you scale your organization, from a a localization perspective, starting somewhat generic initially, um, just basically with some small tweaks from from your core offering. Um, Then over the next few years, things become a little bit more localized. Um, Everything from language to to, to the currencies that you accept, the billing methods that you accept, the, the, the messaging that you're putting out within that market tailoring it to what's specifically going on within that market. You know, Things can be different in Germany to France. You, the mm-hmm. perception of your product and its value may be different in Spain to what people value within the Nordics as well. And, and as you need to unlock that next few million here or there, those are the little nuances which help you do that, build more, more affiliation with that given market.
1: Robbie, what do you think about the actual sales philosophy or methodology that you're putting in place, whether you're a company that uses something like medic or challenger sale or something like that do you have to adapt that as you go country by country or market by market you know there people talk about how the middle east is a very relationship driven market um whereas you know there, there's stereotypes of course but you know there's more rational buyers there's more um relationship driven buyers what do you think about that do you think one approach um or sales methodology covers the entire continent you know that brings up like an interesting subject, which is also important to consider when you're thinking
0: about international strategy. In my mind, um, so while there are, you know, nuances that you need to cater for as you as you localize your approach for a market, I think there are some things that you shouldn't really compromise on, um, and that you should aim for consistency globally. And your sales methodology, I think, should come from from your headquarters, um, and it should like resonate really, really well through through your organization. Um, I think the nuance for markets will come from the people that you hire. Um, What I've kind of noticed before is that, um, you know, someone, say, from the UK who will probably start selling into the Middle East to begin with, you know, we'll have an approach, and they'll be trained really well in the company's methodology, and they'll get so far. And um, but things really begin to move forward when you when you hire someone from that region, um, who who kind of can can talk the talk and walk the walk, and can understand how to unlock the right type of relationships for sure. Um, and that's when you can kind of spin things forward. Even though in the early days it mightn't make sense to to hire specifically for that language requirement or for that area, um, I have noticed that a certain degree of. Uh, you can you just unlock so much more with people who've got good uh, experience. That being said, you just want to ensure that they're well trained with your company's methodology. They understand your values and your culture systems. They can speak super super well for your organization, um, the way that you've trained them. But put that little bit of local nuance and spin on top, which is ultimately what you what you employ them for. You know you can get it wrong as well with with over internationalization, where you have teams or even offices that almost fall out of sync with the company's core culture and the company's core value um, and that's that's the problem you know the the regional leaders need to ensure that um, everything from the company values through to the rituals and traditions which make the company special and individual um, are well observed and understood and enjoyed through through every office whether you're in Tokyo in Dublin in 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 Amsterdam or in or in San Francisco or in New York uh, and that's part of the scale I think of the, of the regional leader too to make sure that you have nuance but not not a whole different direction
1: a lot of great points there and while we're talking about regional leader I want to come back to that question of should your first regional leader be a general manager should they be a functional manager like a sales leader how do you decide which would be better and do you have an opinion um, really,
0: it depends on the company. Um, and it depends on what the needs are. Um, I've seen some organizations where the region takes a whole new approach. And they want to bring in a character who can give a very holistic viewpoint on what's kind of required with the region, and can work with with headquarter functional leaders to kind of stitch together a cross functional plan. Um I've seen scenarios where a company will start just with a team from one specific function, and the international kind of model fits fully within that function. If that makes sense, that can happen with sales quite a lot, where it's just a sales leader that you put in the in the region, and they report to the to the local sales leader, who uh, or to the, to the headquarters sales leader, who effectively is kind of running the international strategy. Then, um, um, I think what companies, I think what's what's, what's important is that the model is flexible, it's fluid, um, and it's almost. The leadership structure is almost what's needed for that given year or for the foreseeable future where the plan is. Um, I've seen models before where you start with with a strong general manager, but over time that manager evolves and grows into just being a bit deeper of a functional leader. Um, and some function within the region, you may have a global leader that's put within the region as well. Um, you know, speak with, with with some some really experienced tenured uh, former colleagues of mine who who would say that you know one year I'm very autonomous the next year I'm reporting into a headquarters function the next year I'm actually reporting to someone in another region again and it kind of it grows that way um i think once your once your senior leadership has their their heads screwed on really about what's required over the next given period and you have just a mature low ego um leadership team within the region you can figure out what model is is, is necessary um at any given time in in notion particular case um you know, small enough organization with an outsized amount of international users. I think just to begin with, we wanted to start with a general manager model, um, someone who can who can stitch together or 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 put together an initial um regional plan, which talks about user growth, which talks about um, conversion monetization, which talks about priority prioritization of markets, and can kind of help um headquarters functions understand what their part to play in the international strategy is to begin with, uh, and then over time, you know, we'll see how our model matures depending on what our needs are at that point.
1: Yeah, the regional the role of the regional light leader is so important and so challenging, and you've had that role m- multiple times. Um, you have a lot on your shoulders, and then you also have to com- you know, compete or contend with distances and um, seeing what's happening on the ground where you have the best view, but not everybody has the same view as you day to day. What have you seen as some of the best practices as a regional leader to stay really in sync with your headquarters? And what are some of the things that people at headquarters can do to set up their regional leader for success?
0: Yeah, I love that question as well. Um, this is like part of the soft, uh, soft art of, uh, of of being a regional leader, I guess. Um, for me, it really all boils down to two things: alignment and communication. Um, you know, there's a very good reason why the organization is investing significant resources to um, to to spin up operations within a region to address its user base. Um, but in many cases, the first time that there's that there's an operation that's literally thousands of miles away operating in a different time zone. Um, so I think your first leader on the ground, part of their role really is to understand thoroughly um, from top levels down what are the strategic what are the strategic objectives of the organization and how does the international uh, operation play a part in that? Um, and then to like to really begin to marry what the regional needs are, to, um how does ladders into the company objectives? Um, honestly, there's a, there's a lot to do there to build trust, to build the right level of trust um, with with your with your global leaders, and that's where it all kind of starts from. Um, I think the, the the grease on the wheels. This makes it work from there. Is just a very thorough and very deliberate level of communications. Um, the kind of golden rule of thumb for me is that your international operation should never become black box where you don't know what's going on. And that can happen easily without a very, very, very considerate level of thought gone into into how you communicate it. So, you know, I think you want to build your plan. You want to socialize your plan. You want to ensure that your plan is well aligned, it's well understood, that it's endorsed by headquarters. Um, And you want to be updating regularly kind of what's going on, both with serious business stuff, but also some fun stuff, some cultural stuff. You want to be demonstrating that you're... uh, you're living the company values over here and that just builds the right level of trust the right level of affiliation and um, for a long period of time i spent my life on a plane and um, getting over and back to, to headquarters just to make sure that as well as the the you know the the regular cadence communication with updates over over emails or tasks or slack um that your presence in your present headquarters um that you're continuing to maintain the right relationships with the right stakeholders who can who can make you successful that you're you're continuing to, to personally evangelize the plans that you're rolling with, lock in their support um, and make sure that, that everybody's well aligned. Um, I think your your regional leader is, is typically reasonably senior within the organization as well. So I think a mistake is if you're you're very pigeonholed and siloed into what's going on within your patch, your region. It's really important for you to have a, a really good opinion generally on what's going on within the organization, within the company. Um, you know, your user feedback from your international markets is just as equally as important as user feedback from from within domestic markets as well. So effectively, you know, you're the voice for the company in the region, but you're also the voice for the region in the company too. So making yourself present, showing up, um, showing up really well within within higher level strategic considerations, um, and really voicing, you know, the concerns and the requirements for your region are, are super important too. And if you do that right, and it's not easy, I think you do build the right level of trust um, within the organization that you're the go-to person, uh, and that you know, everyone should walk walking around saying. I know what's going on in EMEA. Um, I get it. I know what they're doing. Um, and I, I know what their successes are. I know what their difficulties are too. That's when you have things on fleek. But it's really hard to maintain. You have to, you have to work hard to, to keep that
1: level up. That's a lot of great points, Robbie. Uh, any tactical things you, you've found help you maintain that level of trust and communication back with headquarters? Do you do kind of newsletters? Or what are some of the tactical things that you do to make sure that you're providing updates, you're getting bi-directional you know, bi- feedback and providing visibility for your team in Europe? Yeah, good question.
0: Um, there's a few ways that I'll answer this as well. Um, so first of all, I'd say hiring is really important. Um, making sure that you're hiring people that are really, really aligned to the values of the organization and hiring people that you can trust to like do a really good job of, of, of giving feedback back to headquarters. Um, that, that kind of is table stakes for me. When you're bringing on board, particularly an early stage team, someone who you can who can go to bat for you if you're not there with uh, with your with your global team, with your headquarters team, um, tactically as well. Yeah, I think a regular cadence of communication from from the very boring business metrics to to the fun stuff. Um, you know, everyone gets really supercharged around the first hire for a certain language or. When you meet a customer in an exotic market, that like gets a lot of juice and a lot of visibility internally. So you can you can score some good points. I see you smiling there. You probably did the same. Yeah, um, I have. You can, I have. Some, yeah, you can score some good points by just getting visibility on your on your market. Um, I think being a very flexible and easy to work with region is always important. We've all had that region that everybody wants to root for and follow, and there's that region that everyone's like, oh, here they come again. Um, so setting a culture where you're you're outward looking, you want to involve headquarters as much as possible. I think uh, I think goes a long way too. Um, you mentioned your last question. You know what can companies do tactically to set you think set you up well? There's big things. Um, there's very big things like you know any leaders at headquarters who are managing a function that are stakeholders to to the regions. I think it's quite important that they have a global point of view. That they never really forget about the region. That they are they're thinking from a global perspective first. Um, for me, like g- good centralized global leaders that are in headquarters have a little bit of experience within international markets themselves. They know the the burden of of running international teams. They're they're considerate around calendar invites, setting meetings at inclusive times, um, you know, reaching out to the person in the room who might be saying anything because English mightn't be their first language. So I think there's a lot that the company can do there to really level up and make sure they're they're creating an inclusive environment for their for their international teams. Um yeah, I think that's
1: that's would be my major point here from a tactical perspective. This is really good. Um, and I, I think this sort of thing doesn't get um, as covered as much as other topics on international expansion, but super Mm -hmm. important. And uh, I think this is one of the big learnings that uh, my company went through was just really how to continue to empower uh, all the regions, especially as you're growing and things are moving really quickly. Um, But you hit a lot of great points there. You mentioned something earlier, Robbie, about knowing what does good look like and hinted at the fact that maybe what good looks like in the very early days is very different from what it's going to look like as it evolves. So when you're first getting going, what do you look for to know if things are going well? Good question.
0: Um, so I'm going to go back to an old former colleague of mine, Johan Butting, who was, uh, who was my leader when he was getting Dropbox rolling within the region. He, he leads Slack for Europe now. Um, and he did a really good job of creating this, this, uh, this scorecard um, which basically covered all functions, what we need to do over the coming quarter, um, and whether we're doing it. It's so like not quite OKRs, but but kind of pre OKRs. Like, well, what's what's green, what's red, what's yellow, and how do we communicate that back to uh, to headquarters? Um, so I think once you once you've got good alignment before you head off with 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 your um, with whoever's the direct responsible for international headquarters um, around what are we trying to achieve within the first year? Is it user growth? Is it hiring? Is it brand penetration? Um, is it a certain amount of logos that we're trying to win initially? Once you've kind of had a good, thorough conversation around what are your what are your accomplishments that you want to get through in the first quarter, in the first half, in the first year, um, you can then just keep that top of mind when you're in the region. Like a weekly check-in on, on how things are going on the scorecard. Do we have enough candidates in pipeline to create the amount of interviews that we need to hire the amount of people that we need. And um, if not, what's broken there? And where do we need more support? Um, operationally, are we have we managed to segment out the region reasonably well? Um, do we have our, our leads flowing seamlessly to our regional teams? Um, that can be like a check mark as well. Have we secured the 10 new logos in this market that we wanted to secure? Um, or did we get seven? and what happened there and how do we do better next time around? Um, I think there's 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 lots of ways that you can you can measure success within within your first year and just keeping a good track of it and recording it and, uh, and checking in it regularly is is so important in my mind. Love those checklists.
1: I'm, I'm making a lot of notes. Um, It's so much fun. (laughs) Companies, when they get to Europe, they always become quickly aware that there's a lot of Europe and EU-specific challenges. And in the last five years, 10 years, we've seen things like Brexit, GDPR. You always get requests for things like, I want a local data center and I want data to not leave my country. Um, And then you have the garden variety localization requests. Um, Of those things, which... Have been the most impactful for the businesses you've been part of, and Robbie, as we think about the next coming you know, three, five years in Europe, what type of EU-specific challenges do you think ought to be on people's radars?
0: Yes, it's a good question. So, as I mentioned before, Europe is a, is is a region of many different markets that all have different things going on at any given time. Um, you know, unique political considerations through to economies that are roaring or economies that are falling back. Um, there seems to be always something to to kind of keep track of and keep mind of, but at the same time, they're big economies. They're big, powerful economies that are that have big economic centers that you that you know your technology is probably needed there, or your product is needed there as well. Um, so these are just hurdles that you need to you need to work with, and you need to you need to get around or or, or maneuver with. Um, yeah, the, the privacy piece is, is is really important. You know, Europe's Europeans have have uh, a lot of respect for privacy. Um, and you know, it just so happens the nature of our industry that these new products get put up all the time, and they grow really, really fast. And you know, we mightn't always think of security considerations to begin with, but over time, as you penetrate to Europe, you, you, your company is going to start thinking about this because you're going to be getting a lot of feedback from from customers where this is this is always top of mind. You know, Europe is kind of the the heartbeat for for the consciousness around around security online and around privacy online, and and many of the ideas that started in Europe have kind of penetrated globally as well. So um, I think companies are learning earlier to be ahead of the curve on, on how do you, from inception almost, build in some of these considerations for, for international markets from the beginning. Um, it's, it's funny, a pattern that I've noticed with tech companies is that your early audience within the region is typically other tech companies. And it's typically kind of startups and, and SMBs and smaller companies. They have less bureaucratic hurdles in terms of considerations like data security and privacy, they don't have CISOs or or big heads of IT who who are kind of checking a lot of these very important boxes. So typically you see the barriers to entry there are lower. It's when you do start moving into the mid-market, into bigger organizations in the enterprise, that these questions do start kind of arising. Um, So that point that these companies collect that feedback from customers, you know, we didn't close this deal because this feature has been requested, or you know uh, in discovery conversations it, it keeps cropping up um, i mean there's ways you can objection handle it and and the law around data privacy is is somewhat vague still um and it's it's ever changing with privacy shield Privacy shield and eu eu safe harbor um et cetera et cetera it's, it's always evolving but the perception around security and privacy remains regardless of what the kind of legal considerations are um Certainly in the companies I've been with before, uh, if you do want to be a relevant player in the enterprise within Europe, um, a policy and probably some, some product shipped, which is considerate around European local data residency, is going to pop up on the horizon in some cases, or in, in most cases, typically takes, you know, between a year and 18 months to, to ship um, whatever it is your company needs in order to to be to to provide that option to users, and the reason I'm being vague there is that it's, it's actually different for every company. Everyone takes a slightly different approach. Um, Dropbox built a data center and uh, built a few data centers in Europe. Um, I think Slack have a have the ability to to localize elements of your data, whatever elements you want, in different regions. So there's there's innovative ways to deal with it, but I think it's table stakes for when you when you grow within the within the region that you'll have that. In terms of in terms of like overall considerations, of what's coming down the line. It's very hard to predict, you know, every business, you know, how much time do you spend looking into the crystal ball and saying what will happen in five years, in 10 years? It's hard to do that. More so than anything, I think companies will just roll with the punches um, on the fly in these pieces. What I think is interesting is that tech has like largely been impervious to, to many of these large, to these considerations. I mean, Brexit happened, it's a very interesting societal thing that happened, but didn't really change any approaches to how tech companies will think about that market, so to say. Um, maybe there's, there's, you know, should we accept pounds and euros or dollars here or
1: there? But no, nothing too major too major changes in the moment. Very good. Um, Robbie, uh, just thanks for all those perspectives. Um, we went pretty deep on a lot of topics and you had some really great points. Uh, for the last set, I just kind of wanted to zoom out a little bit um, and maybe just talk about your personal experiences a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about the mentors and the resources that have been most helpful to you in all of these international roles that you've had?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think part of my, my own career growth, I think from, from a relatively early stage, I was just very curious around, around how tech companies operate, how, how businesses operate. Um, in my very early days, I was a young book in in Google as part of the the, the geo team. Um, at that stage, Google was trying to figure out how it uh how it monetized its google maps api platform and basically it spent billions of dollars in investing in this technology to give it away to, for free to the world but then noticed that with with an api licensing model you could claw back a lot of that revenue and actually a lot of a lot of businesses wanted to partner with the organization rather than take free technology so in typical google fashion um they had the opportunity to build like a billion dollar business um in in the backyard of the company based on a product that they never intended to sell um so i got to be part of a consultancy internal consultancy team who who worked on that 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 licensing model. And pretty quickly, the company figured out that this is actually more of like a SaaS selling approach. And um, this isn't, you know, we wouldn't put this in, in the AdWords monster. This is more along the lines of kind of the way that we're thinking we want to sell Gmail and G Suite. Um, so the, the GO team was saddled beside the, the the Gmail team. And I was just so fortunate because I got to watch, you know, senior marketers join the company and figure out how to build a marketing plan for this new product. Um, got to see senior sales leaders figure out you know what the segmentation should look like. What the selling motion looks like. How do you build operations here? How do you enable these teams? Uh, how do you build like a Salesforce integration from Slack or inter- iteration from from the ground up? So I just took my opportunity to like sponge all of this in, and in, in many other parts of the organization, you wouldn't have had that access. And this gave me a very, it gave me a very, a very uh, strong passion for kind of the general management pieces. I watched uh, a senior operator called Sebastian Merot. Um, just like pull all of these things together, um, and that was that was something I found interesting. Um, by the time I moved to, to Dropbox, you know, I wanted to work somewhere a little bit smaller, a high level of impact. Again, I got to I got to operate really, really closely to some great senior leaders there. From Johan Butting, who, who leads Slack now, to Adrian Gormley, who's the COO of, of N26 now, to Geraldine McCarthy, who's the CEO of Personio. Some real rock stars um, had some really great years in, in Dropbox. And again, we started with five people within the region in Dublin. I was one of the, the lucky early five. Um, um, ran some programs, some initiatives, some teams during that time. Just got to see some of these really classy operators um, do things. You know, there's some things we got really right during that time, some things we completely screwed up during that time as well. Um, but I always I always you know, took the opportunity to to, to be useful there and, and derive really good mentorship from all these people. Um, and they're still part of the network. You know, There's they're still people that you go to all the time to ask questions and, and a lot of things. I think something that's really brilliant about Dublin as well is that there are so many companies that are doing like the same thing. They're just at different stages in the journey. So there's like, I'm, I can't tell you how many times I've met really great leaders in LinkedIn who said, oh yeah, I remember when we were at that stage, here's what we did. I bet you're seeing this blocker and that blocker. I'm saying, you're exactly right. Um, and you know, here's one things we did. Here's one thing definitely don't do. Um, at the same time, you know, you see someone who's maybe a year behind you or two years behind you and you just want to put your hand out and help um, and say, welcome. Um, you know here's what year one looked like for us and here's some things that we did well and here's some things we screwed up and it's fun to see them implement these pieces as well so that mentorship is, is so important, it's so strong, and it's something I really enjoy within, within the tech community, that everybody's really willing to help. Um, and you know they see this as a puzzle that needs, that needs fixing, and everyone's a little bit curious about what you're doing within your puzzle. as long as it's not a competitive puzzle <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone, everyone seems so willing to, kinda, to, to reach out and help out. And you know, there's generations of, of players here who and an untapped um, unimaginable amount of knowledge that you can tap into
1: um, at any given stage.: it's So true. And I think everybody looks at the successes, but anybody who's done this has made tons and tons of mistakes and painful learnings uh, along the way. Uh, just curious from you, um, you know, we talked a lot about best practices, but any things that you see people getting wrong or maybe even you personally, you know, mistakes that you learn from?
0: yeah uh, god how long do you have um plenty <laughs> i think um <laughs> i think one thing that i'm always very transparent with teams within headquarters is with like it's a bumpy ride it's not it's not always easy you're gonna have you're gonna have some really really great successes and they're gonna be joyful and they're gonna be really really cool and you're gonna love them and it's gonna give everybody a real bump and you're gonna get a bunch of stuff wrong as well um and that's okay that's totally okay you hope that the wrong isn't too damaging um but it, sometimes it can be it can be tough. Um, be it people or be it um, initiatives or programs. And, and, you know, that's just part of that goes with the territory. Um, it's very funny, arcing back very quickly to something you mentioned before um, around kind of good growth hacks. I, a little tactic that I used before, which I just find so fun, is that when you have a, like, a globally run team with somebody in headquarters who has to now extend their operation to the region... Um, let's say like marketing, say, say you're set up with sales and success within the region, but marketing is still kind of headquartered in, 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 in San Francisco or something. And, um, you know, this leader has been told, okay, we got to get rolling within the region. That's tough for them. If they haven't done it before, it's like, oh God, now I got to, now I got to, you know, tackle this complex region. I got to pretend I know what I'm doing. So, you know, first thing I do is, is get them on a plane, get them over to Dublin Um, you know, just get them here, get them here for a week and set up like 10 meetings with other marketers within the region who are just so happy to meet them and show them a thing or two around what they've done within the region. It's just so fun to see people extend their international network and meet some great people from peer organizations who are so willing to help as well. And I kind of tag along to those meetings and just seeing those execs, their face light up as they take all of these beautiful nuggets and these rich ideas um that they can they can incorporate into their strategy. It just helps it's fun to see kind of people level up uh, in that regard. So sorry that was a bit of a tangent from from the uh, from the question you'd ask. Um, in terms of in terms of things that you got wrong, um i'm a big believer in like making bets um and to communicate what those bets are upwards and you know you have some moderately likely to succeed bets and then you have some like ones that are pretty far out there um and uh you know you can be surprised sometimes your ones that you think are sure things are, are not going to come off um uh, and sometimes the, the hail mary's like really 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 nail it um and and you can kind of double down on them as well. But as long as there's decent appetite for risk and and a thorough level of understanding um that, that we can make amends for anything that goes wrong, then that's probably a healthy place to be from your strategic perspective.
1: That's uh I, I really like what you said about, you know, making those bets and um communicating that you're it's gonna be bumpy. And, you know, as I think as long as you have buy-in that of course to succeed, we're gonna need to experiment and things are Gonna go right more than they go wrong, but you know we're not. We have your back when things do, don't work out as as ex- hoped or expected. Um, big yeah. big part of the puzzle there. Yeah,
0: I mean, I mean G- Geraldine McCarthy, who who again is in persona. She would every quarter would start with you know what's your plan? Um, let's see your okay hours and and where's your B hack? Where's your where's your big hairy audacious goal? If you didn't have one, that's a problem. That's a problem. If you're just cruising this quarter to like steady growth, come on, let's do something. Let's do something more fun here. Um, let's let's have at least one really big ambitious goal here that we want to we want to go after within the quarter. Not seven, <laughs> um, maybe maybe maximum two or three, um, and uh, and let's be ambitious here because that's how you that's how you break ground, right? That's how you break ground within the region.
1: I love that, Robbie. Thanks for all the insights and sharing the tactics and the strategy that you've put into place at so many uh, top tech companies going into Europe. I always learn a ton when I speak with you, and uh, I hope I think everybody else out there listening to this uh, will have learned a lot from you today as well.
0: Oh, not at all, Ramsey. It's it's a real pleasure, and it's likewise. Um, uh, I learn so much from you every time we speak as well, and looking forward
1: to many more conversations. Fantastic. Well, Robbie, best of luck with Notion and taking over Europe, and hope we get to talk again very soon.
0: Thanks, Ramsey. Great to speak with you. See you soon.
1: Thanks again for listening to the International Expansion Podcast. If you found this information helpful, I hope you'll subscribe and share this info with a friend or colleague. As a reminder, if you or your company is looking for guidance on your international expansion journey, From sizing and prioritizing markets to getting up to speed on local conditions, finding world-class talent, or building up your brand and revenue, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Until next time, take care.